Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, where we talk about all the stuff I couldn't fit in my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, a 10-speed press publication through Pandem Rang- Penguin Random House that's sold on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and, of course, in your local independent bookstore. Thank you, Broadway Books, for always keeping my book on your shelves. Broadway Books is down the street from me, and they're owned by just the loveliest women, and I feel good every time I walk in their doors. I also want to send a big shout-out to another community, Hub-O-Women, close-knit, knitting supplies and classes in Portland, Oregon. I just like them. I buy my yarn there, and I take my classes there, and I join the group of women, well, mostly women, some men too, um, and we all get together to knit and chat and ruminate and compare, contrast our work and teach each other and share stuff and complain and brag and solve and do our work and, you know, all the stuff that women do together in small, intimate gatherings and communities. I bet you have spots like that in your own towns too or somewhere nearby where interesting people you like get together. If not, go find one. Try knitting. It's awesome. Who doesn't like find hand knits? Anyway, this week's guest is really inspiring me to open up a big piece of the United States and global maternal health care conversation for inspection and discussion. We need to talk about race and how pervasive institutional racism and racial cultural differences, perceptions, experiences, and disparities directly impact women's lives, their children's lives, their entire community's well-being. We especially need to talk about racism in terms of the most daunting maternal health statistics in, in America, maternal mortality death. We often use that marker to evaluate the strength of a maternal health care system. It means how many women per 100,000 live births die. In healthy societies with well-functioning healthcare systems, fewer women die from pregnancy-related conditions. In less healthy ones with poorly functioning healthcare systems, more women die. This marker, the maternal mortality ratio, it's, it's a poor one because it only measures the worst case scenario situations. It doesn't measure the range of experiences women have in their birth. Um, that has to include trauma and conflict and complications that many, many women experience during their pregnancies and that directly impact their health outcomes and leave an impression on their future pregnancies and their motherhood and parenthood experiences. The maternal mortality ratio is a place to start the conversation, though, because it is so damn shocking. The Centers for Disease Control releases its um, periodic report that's titled Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System, which looks at data compiled from all the birth records in the country. And um, I think that the most recent report looks at the years uh, up to 2013, and it reflects a pattern that we've seen for a long, long time. And here's what they say. Considerable racial disparities in pregnancy-related mortality exist. During 2011 to 2013, the pregnancy-related mortality ratios were 12.1 deaths per 100,000 life births for white women, 40.4 deaths per 100,000 life births for black women, 16.4 deaths for women of other races. Let me, let's let that sink in. African-American women are four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related conditions in the American maternal health care system than white women. We have to talk about this. So I got in touch with um, Nakia Lawson in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. And once we got started talking, we just couldn't stop. So today's conversation with Nikia is part one of what I hope will be a nice long conversation that takes place time and again on this podcast. It's hard to talk about race. It's hard for me as a white woman in Portland, Oregon, to talk about race. It's hard for women of color to talk about race too. It's hard for all of us 
so what? Do it anyway. Do it in the best way possible. I have to be straight up honest here. I am afraid to do it wrong. And like many of you, that probably leads me to avoiding that conversation um, when perhaps I shouldn't. I'm worried about my own perspectives, my own experiences, my own ignorance getting in the way of what I say and, you know, saying the wrong thing. But so what? Do it anyway, right? I guess I have to trust that approaching conversations intentionally with humility and perhaps with the hope for a better understanding, it's a good place to start. So with that, let's get Nikia Lawson on the line for part one of a darn good conversation. We'll run part two on June 24th, and then I'm hoping to keep Nikia in on our ongoing conversation here at Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting. Let's get her on the line. Hello. Hi, Nikia. This is Jeannie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am doing really well. And, you know, I I want to let our listeners know that Nikia and I are overcoming incredible technological hurdles at this moment. (laughs) And we've made it. We've made it together. Yes. Yes. We're here. Yeah. So that means that you and I have had the chance to have a couple little bit of conversations. And we've talked about our names. And we talked about how Nikia... I asked you if that was the right way to spell it, and I was really grateful that I had spelled it correctly. And my name spelled the way it is, J-E-A-N-N-E. It's people don't know. Right. Right. So for me, they call me uh, Jeanne. They call me Jenny. I get Jennifer. I get all kinds of mispronunciations. That's crazy how you get Jennifer. They just assume your name is short for something else. Like I get the T added often, Nikita. Yeah, Nikita. Yeah, and you said yeah, it's like, not even there. Letters that aren't even there. <laughs> I know. Do you think that says something about the level of literacy we see in our country, or something I about think, the way we see words? We we have expectations that it's going to be something, therefore it is. A little bit of that, and a little bit of the fact that we don't pay attention to detail as much as we used to because. Everything is so fast, and with technology being the way it is, people are so quick. It's at least this microwave moment. And so you see it in a microwave moment, you process it in a microwave moment, yeah. and then you move through it just that fast. And so if I see Nikia and I'm thinking Nikita, I'm just going to say Nikita. Even if I see it spelled yeah. Nikia, yeah. I, I want to say Nikita. So that's what's in my head. I process it as Nikita. Yeah. Um, and that happens a lot to me. People will respond to me with a T, even though I clearly have spell my name out with no T. Do you correct <laughs> so, do you correct them? Every time. Oh yeah. Every single time. I think I think knowing someone's name is a big part of you regarding them as an individual. Uh-huh. Um so I do I do to my mother a lot. You know, she uses her her um her her elder life now as an excuse to mispronounce people's names. And I was like, Mom, that's not cool. You know, so we've got to be mindful of people's names. It's like it's 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 the badge. It's their it's name. The badge of who I am. Yeah. Yes, it's my name. Yeah. Well, yes, I, my, I'm big on that. I have a complicated name too, and um, you know, I I guess that I just don't want to deal with it. You know, Faulkner. It could be anything, <laughs> and you know, all those L's and K's and N's. And if you lose, you know, the L or you lose the N, then our name is really a lot of trouble. And my middle schoolers told me right. about that. Yeah. 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 Leave it to kids to identify those things. Yeah. Yeah. So we go from, you know, meet the Falkers to just lose that (laughs) A. (laughs) And it's every middle school boy's dream name, right? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And how do you take out like three or four letters of someone's last name and just create a whole new last name for them? But that's what kids will do. Yeah. Kids find a way. Yeah. They do. Yeah. They're interested in that way. (laughs) So I think it's really good that you educate people because it's an unfamiliar name. I'm a little lazier. True. And I just, you know, like at Starbucks, I'll just go by Jen because it's three letters. Nobody mispronounces it. And I just don't have to spend the energy, but. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, speaking of the three letters, it, yeah. that you say that when people call me Nick, they cut off. I've had people call me Nick and that's family and friends. Most people who are really close to me yeah. call me Nick. And I realize that we've got a familiarity from like 
grade school yeah. or whatnot. And then yeah. there are some people that call me Kia, which is the last three letters of my name, which I completely do not respond to at all. <laughs> so someone has been, someone gets really familiar within themselves yeah. to call me Kia. And I'm like, that's not even close to my name yeah, yeah. that I would go by. Yeah. And that's not even a nickname, you know, yeah. Nikki growing up and they shortened that to Nick. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm okay with that. But then when you go to the other end, it's just, it's hilarious. People. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. People just get really familiar with you without even kind of knowing what you're, you know, that's, that's interesting. The three letters. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how people do that, that intimacy, yeah. that kind of inferred intimacy by shortening the name. My husband's yes. name is Jerome and people will, um, not most women, I don't think they'll, they'll call him by Jerome if that's what he says, but guys right. will try to call him Jerry and he is not a Jerry. Never been really? a Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And see, in the in the African American community, he would have been Rome, period. Yeah. Rome yeah. or Romy Rome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? Um, my husband is white, but all my life there's been an assumption when people don't know me that since my husband's yes. name is Jerome, that he's African American. Of course. That's yeah. very, very ethnic. It's very, very culturally connected to the African American community. Yeah. Yeah. That's no. so interesting. Yeah. It's na- <laughs> names. We could talk about names all day long. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. And and I have to find so out funny. where in the country you are, but we also run the risk of talking about weather all day long because I'm fascinated with it. And my listeners are really used to me whining about Portland weather. But I do have to know yes. where in the country are you? I'm in the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area, which is uh, what we consider North Texas, um, kind of close to Oklahoma. So I'm kind of on tornado alley speaking of the weather. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. And so we're close enough to North Texas in the Oklahoma area that we get the tornadoes, but then we're also part of Texas, which is a border state. So we get the humidity from the water, even though it's a little bit further away, but Texas is so huge and the weather is so different. Like every day it could be a different pattern of the weather, um, which is kind of, kind of crazy. We don't get winners very often, um, but when we hear the word wintry mix, that's something the news will put on a wintry mix. Everyone goes to the grocery store and they load up on water and groceries and all kinds of stuff because a wintry mix is yeah. coming. And we know, I mean, they shut the schools down, oh, the roads are closed. Too. Yeah. Oh, we don't God. know what We're to just... do with it. <laughs> we don't know what to do with a wintry mix. We don't either. Oh, that is so hilarious. I love to see it when it comes on TV. Here in Thinking Portland. about Chicago and in Detroit, and they get blizzards and I we know. get a wintry mix. I know. They make <laughs> they laugh at us. They make fun of us. We do the same thing. We're we're going to be getting out of school. I think I don't know, maybe a full week late because of all the snow ah. days that we had. And seriously, we didn't ah. have, we didn't have that much snow. We had. Uh, chances of snow. We had rumors right. of snow. We had snow in some parts of the city. We had threat of wintry mix. And we did have several legit ice storms, 100% legitimate. Ah, but, you know. That is so Texas. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. kind of us too. We're not accustomed to the cold. So yeah. it's pretty hot. We're hot and dry. But babies. yeah, that's our weather. Yeah. But we don't have tornadoes. <laughs> Ah, Portland yes, does not have a, do. a tornado alley. So, uh, well, Nikia, here we are. Yeah. Seriously, I could talk about the weather for a long time because I just love it. I but love it. I love your bio. And generally, not always, but I, I generally like to read someone's bio, you know, before I get them on the call. Um, But yours is just so amazing that... Instead of reading it before our call today, I kind of want to read it here and just talk it through from top to bottom. You good with that? Oh, thank you. Cool, cool. Nakia Lawson, owner and operator of Birth Blessings Professional Birth Services, referred to as Birth Blessings, offers skills training in birth doula support, community childbirth education, and Bangkung belly binding, and business coaching to professional birth workers whose desire is to bridge the gap between private and community-based birth and postpartum support as a business and or ministry. Nikia embraces birth doula care through the Doula Couture, her high-end birth doula experience and lifestyle birth brand. She serves her local birth community, offering social services and programming through her nonprofit organization, 
the Natural Way Birthing Project, which focuses on infant mortality awareness and reduction in Tarrant County and Fort Worth, Texas area. Whew! Some, there are some parts of this that uh, I just, I look at it and I say, yes, please. Like <laughs> the, the business coaching to professional birth workers. Thank you. Yes. Helping women bridge the gap between their business and their ministry. Love it. Yes. But now that I've read that part, <clears throat> you have a whole other paragraph that I want to read, but I want to ask you this other question first. Sure. Who are you and what do you do? Awesome. So appreciate you reading my bio. Thank you so much for the accolades and the wonderful words. I love um, it. I love it. Thanks. Thanks yeah. so much. Uh, so basically who I am, I am a birth doula. I am a um, donor certified birth doula. I'm also an approved trainer for Donor International. And I am a birth worker here in my local community. So uh, that's just kind of where it started for me about 20 one years ago, my sister went into labor with my son. And my whole life, I wanted to become an engineer. I prepared myself in the third grade to become an electrical engineer. And I went to school and I studied the highest levels of mathematics in high school. Got an academic scholarship to study physics for two and a half years at, um, at uh, uh, no, I, I was studying, I was scheduled to study physics at Clark Atlanta University, and I did it for two and a half years before I changed my major. But uh, I went on an academic scholarship. I was prepared to become an engineer. And then I ventured into birth work on a whim. Um, I had gone with a friend to support her uh, in our college days to terminate a pregnancy. And I was exposed to birth work for the very, very first time there. And I got a spiritual epiphany sitting in an abortion clinic, literally. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it was just kind of a vision that said, you know, a voice that said, you're not supposed to become an engineer. You're supposed to become a social worker and you're supposed to counsel and discuss this whole concept of womanhood and, and parenting and birthing to as many women as you can touch, yeah. predominantly teens. That was kind of where, where my epiphany came. Yeah. I left there and went the next semester and changed my major, gave up my scholarship and became a social work major. And I finished out my undergrad degree in social work. Um, 10 years later, I did go back and get my master's degree in counseling, but that was my journey into birth work. Um, that same year I came, no, as a matter of fact, a year or so later, I came home, my sister was giving birth and I was there for her uh, in the delivery room. And she looked at me and in speaking of the nickname, Nick, she called me Nick. She said, Nick, this is what you're supposed to do. Mm. This is your calling. Mm. Mm. And I took her words to heart and I, I went back to school and I looked into this whole concept of birth coaching and what that meant. And at the time it was so expensive to become a doula. I was a very new profession, you know, 20 plus years ago yeah. and um, only a handful of select individuals um, took on the resource to become a doula and create a lifestyle of it. Mm -hmm. So I in turn just, took my skills and took my desire and took my passion and went to the community. And so I served the community for years as a doula, not even knowing what a doula was and what a doula did. Mm -hmm. Just knowing I wanted to be in the delivery room, helping women birth their babies and explaining to them about how precious this experience was. And that was what I did for years and years. And I came home to Texas and was introduced to community-based doula work mm -hmm. um, through a nonprofit organization, the Fourth Dallas Birthing Project. And I was enamored by the idea of being a doula in the community for women. And it was a job. It's like, oh my gosh, this is what I get to do every day. Yeah. And I just, I, I embraced it. And I was just so excited. This was back in 2008. And um, I had gone on to graduate school and got my master's degree and stepped back into the community. And then that program lost its funding and it was just kind of fledgling. Everything was just left. And I said, there's got to be something because people kept asking about what happened to the community doula program? What happened yeah. to the community doula program? And um, I said, well, I've got to revitalize it. And so in 2011, I decided to create my own um, nonprofit birth support organization. And that's how the Natural Way Birthing Project became a part of my brand. Um, and so that was my effort to serve the community. I was very fortunate to get a hospital contract with our county hospital because of my community work. And I did that for two years from 2014 to 2016. But um, as I was looking at the idea of the fact that this contract was going to end and it wasn't going to be an opportunity to renew it. Um, not that that was what 
my vision for where I wanted to go was going to take me. Mm-hmm. I thought I got to do something in business. I don't have any, I don't have any legs to stand on outside of what I've been doing mm-hmm. as a community doula for years and years. Mm-hmm. And so I actually went to a business academy and I spent an entire year in a business academy learning the business side of just birthing and coaching, well, coaching in general yeah. for business, for women entrepreneurs. And I came back with that concept and that's what led me to establish more of a coaching for professional birth workers. Um, and so that became a part of my brand. Um, and then also looking at the aspect of having a lifestyle in this industry of birth that most people either martyr themselves and they burn out or they have a high-end business and they don't serve the community. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was there is a way to have a very luxury brand um, and still have the experience that I want people to have as a lifestyle brand with my dual work. And then there's also a way that I can serve my community. And so that's how my Earn and Serve brand kind of came to be. And that's how I kind of evolved into the birth space from doing it just in the community. Wait, wait, to wait. Stepping in. Earn and serve yes. brand. I love that. Yes. Earn and serve, bridging the gap between for-profit and non-profit birth support. That is my brand as a business trainer and a coach and a mentor in the birth world for those individuals who are venturing into birth work. So for birth professionals to understand you can serve your community and you can earn not just a living wage, which I love that Penny Simpkin um, uses that term for individuals in the birth world. She says, you know, we, we need to create a living wage. I shifted that um, because I want to shift the atmosphere and the mindset of birth workers to understand that you can create a lifestyle wage. Yeah. And that's a very big difference between a living wage and a lifestyle wage. Um, so I like, that's part of what I teach. A living wave, wage and a thriving wage. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's yeah, that's 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 along the lines of a lifestyle wage, a thriving wage. Um, and so it gives you the, the ability when you have a, a lifestyle or a thriving wage, it gives you the ability to serve mm-hmm. and have a serving heart, a servant's heart in the birth space to be an activist or an advocate or a community organizer or whatever it is that leads you to the work that connects you to the work where it's not about the money because you know there is a there is a value in what we do and it should have a compensation uh, attached to it and I don't take away from that aspect of it but at the same time there's a level of the work that we do that meets the need of the marginalized the Mm -hmm. disenfranchised Mm -hmm. and the disproportionately affected Mm -hmm. families of every community across the globe not just in the U.S. Right. But definitely in our individual communities. And definitely in Texas and definitely in the African-American community, which yes. disproportionately um, is impacted by really crummy outcomes. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Our maternal mortality rate um, increased. Uh, a lot of it had to do back in 2000. And don't quote me on the numbers. I I, I did oh, this yeah. conversation a while numbers. back, and I had my numbers in front in front of yeah, me. Yeah, no worries. But uh, uh, let me just say, a few years ago, a few years ago, when legislation changed, and a lot of the women's health issues were taken off the table uh, for funding and support from a state level, right. uh, a lot of what was available to women uh, suffered. And in yeah. that suffering, there was so many more adverse outcomes that we didn't anticipate. And of course, those always in in every aspect of the demographic affect disproportionately African-American women are are affected more so than any other ethnic group. Um, And it it was a a major impact and our maternal mortality rates did go up um, even higher amongst those. Like four times. A lot. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that was in, yeah, that was in that time frame when the legislation was, was basically snatched from uh, maternal health programs in Texas. Uh, The numbers have, uh, slightly dipped a little bit in the last couple of years. This was like in, um, I would say 2011, 12, uh, 13 era. Mm-hmm. And then kind of as, you know, 15, 16 kind of came around, the numbers dropped slightly, just, you know, maybe like a half a percentage. Yeah. Um, so it didn't not, make a major We're not seeing impact. a trend yet. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> not at all. And, you know, we're still wondering what's to come, you know, with uh, the current administration and the different ways that, legislation is shifting here in the state of Texas. Some strides are being made, but then there's still a long way to go um, in looking at the the impact that it has on African-American women yeah. and the fact that they're looking at that one year 
post uh, postpartum and, and why women are dying. You know, the cardiac uh, uh, events are, are much more prominent. Mm-hmm. The the for infant mortality, it's still maternal. It's still maternal infection is the, is the number one. And then um, low birth weight and prematurity, prematurity leading to low birth weight yeah. um, is the second. And so they kind of neck and neck as to why our little ones are dying on top of the fact that we're still trying to get the message to um, the African-American community about the benefits and the values of breastfeeding again. So those, those numbers are picking up, which is going to create a lot more of a shift, but of course we cannot negate the institutional racism that has affected. Yeah. That has affected our numbers across the board in every aspect, in every demographic that affects the lifestyle of African-American families. And I think that, you know, having worked in hospitals, you know, in Los Angeles and in Portland, Oregon, I feel like the value of doula services for African-American women is more important now than ever because of the institutional racism that we don't fully understand how it impacts anybody, but it's present. And when you have someone there who is specifically there to, as a doula, regardless of your, or of your situation, it means that you are there in force, that you are there to support your client to get what she wants, no matter what the odds. And that's right. essential. We, we, you and I became associated because of um, something that happened back in April regarding Ina Mae Gaskin. Yes. And now yes. I think we should touch on this. I know for those, okay. for those of our listeners who don't know who Ina Mae Gaskin is, she is a, um, midwife who's probably somewhere in her seventies now, I would imagine. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the founder of a generally very well-regarded and well-known midwifery practice and educational program for midwives. Um, that's oftentimes credited for, you know, legitimizing midwifery in the late 20th and early 21st century in the United States. And her practices have drawn a lot of criticism over the years from a number of communities and perspectives, um, as midwifery always does. But Mm -hmm. even while her midwifery techniques are considered, you know, somewhat standard of care in many hospitals, you know, there's the Gaskin maneuver that we do to uh, invert, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Breach babies, but exactly. I wanted to t- to get you. I I would like you to explain this situation, if you could. So um, every year uh, we have an organization here in in Texas called the Texas Birth Network. Um, there were a small group of uh, birth workers and consumers who created a small organization called the Tarrant County Birth Network, which was affiliated with um, National Birth Networks. They branched off from National Birth Networks and started Texas Birth Network and reached out to some local um, individuals in the birth community to say, hey, let's let's kind of expand this in our metropolitan area and eventually expand it over the state. And so part of that expansion was to do fund fundraising um, as they became a nonprofit organization. And one of their major fundraisers annually has become the Birth Roundup. Um, the the name kind of was synonymous with the state of Texas and the fact that it's here in Fort Worth and the stockyards, which is where it was hosted originally, um, just the whole cattle drive. It actually happens. We actually have a literal cattle drive in the middle of the, in the middle of the stockyards um, daily. And so, yeah, it's kind of funny. People come and they're impressed by the fact that we still drive cattle, but um, <laughs> that was part of the, the, the reasoning, the name kind of happened and it kind of stuck and uh, it kind of became synonymous with their annual event where they would bring in very prominent speakers to come and share those concepts to the birth workers who participated um, and the consumer base who participates in what their, what their advocacy group is doing. Uh, This past April, they partnered with ICANN, the International uh, Cesarean Awareness Network to do a dual, a dual, uh, birth Roundup event in which they invited Ida Mae Gaskin back to speak again this year. She spoke um, in years past, but this year she was invited back to speak on a, on a platform of maternal mortality. 
And through the ICANN and the Texas Birth Network collaboration, they had a panel group to speak uh, earlier in the day, and then they also had a presentation by Anna McGaskin for her maternal mortality uh, presentation that she was doing that afternoon. Now, I unfortunately was not able to attend uh, because my nonprofit organization offers a free community childbirth class every single fourth Saturday of the month except Mm. December Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because I, I do that and I make a commitment to offer that reasonable service unto my community and unto my God for that one day a month. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I was <laughs> when the roundup was happening. Yeah. And um, so when I, when I end up hearing about it, um, it came to me from quite a few of the birth workers and a few of the consumer advocates that are part of the network reached out to me and said, Nikia, you know, there was an incident that happened. Um, we would love some feedback from you because you are one of the, one of the few African-American birth workers, you know, and, and I definitely consider myself one of the leaders in my community. So they reached out to me, shared with me the video that was posted of the question and answer that was posed to Ida Mae Gaskin in regards to her take on the racial, the impact of racism on maternal mortality and her response was very glazed over and it spoke basically to the fact that we need to, as African-American women need to eat, eat better, work harder and pray more. Um, And in her little soliloquy of, of the answer, that's kind of what came of it. And so it was eat better, work uh work harder, work harder and pray more, pray more. Yes. Yes. And that would help the, maternal mortality rates among African-American women. Um, she went on to share a couple of stories and her connection to some of the grand midwives that she learned from um, and, and her, in her tutelage in midwifery. And that was her response to how racism impacts maternal mortality rates amongst African-American women. Hmm. And it was not only disheartening to hear her response, but even more disheartening to hear the laugh and the snickers of the majority of the room, which was white women of privilege. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was even a sadder display um, in, in, in the overall view of it, because the Texas birth network was oblivious to what had just happened. The ICANN, uh, representatives were oblivious to what just happened and it definitely garnered immediate attention when the young lady who posed the question confronted the situation in in the way that she knew how Um, part of that was to establish a petition and the petition spoke to the first network also to ICANN in regards to diversity training, anti-racism training, inclusivity, diversity, just the whole nine yards, acknowledging that racism plays a role. And, you know, when you mentioned before about we don't know why, you know, um, these race, this, this exists and how it, how it affects us. We actually do know. We do know that from an epigenetic perspective, the microaggressions that have been dealt to specifically black women as it relates to maternal um, health and wellness changes us on a cellular level. Yeah. Yeah. It changes us on a cellular level. So when you're constantly told, uh, and this is things that I've witnessed over the years and I had to kind of go back and I had to, and, and I don't use the word process too often because I just think it just, it just bogs me down just thinking about words, the words I use, I'm, I'm pretty much intentional. But when I had to process my experiences with the women that I've worked with and to go into a doctor's office with them as their support person, as their doula, and to be told you have to wait out here, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll take her back by herself right. um, in, in a state of, you know, not understanding or not knowing, or here you have someone that's a professional to guide you through the process right. and they're not allowed to be beside you, to support you. Yeah. Um, that, that definitely um, doesn't happen with my white clients as much as it has happened with so my African-American clients. I, I hear you say that. Microaggression. And I already have questions. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I would think that 
that's a moment where you don't want to have to defend yourself. But yet your client needs a witness and a support system in that room. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So and, and, and who and, and, the and, hell are they yeah. to tell you or tell her who she can and cannot have by her side at an intimate, and, yeah. vulnerable moment? Yeah, exactly. So exactly. what do you and do? It happens what do you do at often. that moment? I, I have, you know, immediately gone to my client and said, would you like me to come back with you or are you okay yes. to go back by yourself? But then because she has she's to be empowered brave. enough. Yeah. Yeah. She has to be empowered enough to say, you know, yeah, you can come on back because again, that's our right as a consumer. And so most of it is educating the women of their rights as a consumer. Birth is a consumer service. Very much so like getting a haircut. Uh Um, And I tell, and I use that analogy all the time when I share and I educate women about their choices and their options when it comes to their birth experience. You can go into a hairstylist and you have a very specific idea of what you want for your hair and, and the style of the cut that you want. And if you're going to get your hair cut, you don't go in to the stylist and say, just do whatever you want to do. Right. You know, I trust you wholeheartedly. I haven't even looked at a style. I haven't thought about it. I, I know you're a professional. You'll do what's best for my head, my look. Yeah. And then they just go willy nilly with scissors in your head and just cut your hair. Yeah. You, you pretty much don't do that. No. You pretty much just have an idea of what you want right. your, your hair to look like. And if it's a bad hairstyle, you can wash it out and restyle your hair. If it's a bad haircut, your hair can grow back. You don't get that do-over with your birth experience. No, you don't. You don't get a chance to wash it out and rinse it out and do it over. Right. It's the one experience you get for this particular moment that you've embraced for 40 weeks of your life. You know, a good majority of a year of your life carrying a baby that you've created with someone who you love and care about. And it's reduced to sit down, I'll do what I want to do to your, to your style or to your experience. Yep. Yep. And that is what educating the community of women to understand this is a consumer service. You do have a say, right? You do get now when it comes to health and wellness, we definitely want to make sure that the, you know, health is, is priority, healthy mom, healthy baby outcomes are our desire. First and foremost, for me, that is what I educate families on. That is our number one priority, mm-hmm. healthy mom, healthy baby outcome. Mm-hmm. My second priority for mom um, is a vaginal delivery. Yeah. Uh, because again, the opportunity to avoid major abdominal surgery to deliver your baby is, is definitely something that needs to be educated on, not necessarily just, you know, a situation that happens for birth. Because, it, you know, it takes you know, the education. Because the leading causes of maternal death in all communities, but especially in the African-American community, come down to sepsis, um, blood clots, mm-hmm. hemorrhage, yes. and cardiac yes. issues. And, and cardiac events. Oh, yes, you know, cardiac C-sections. events are the number one. Yes. Yeah. C-sections are one of the few surgeries that we do these days where it's not a micro incision. It's a big six-inch you know, gash yes, on your ma'am. belly right down near your yes. intestines. With a lot and of that, blood flow. Yes. Yeah. And yes. you have that first to your, C-section. To your reproductive organ. Yes. yes. You have that first C-section. And then, you know, your next pregnancy, you're going to have to hope that that placenta doesn't grow into the scar. And then you're going to have a second C-section. A lot C-section. of factors. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so there, yeah, there are a lot of risk factors that go along with that, that women are not educated about because again, once a C-section, always a C-section is yeah. what was taught. So we're having to reteach that concept that V-backs are options. Yeah. Uh, we're having to, to teach moms that you have a voice, you know, in, in terms of your pregnancy, inductions are becoming mainstream. Yeah. Um, women, you know, African-American women in particular, again, when you look at the social determinants that go along with being black and being pregnant in America, yeah. um, looking at the, the cellular changes, we have more cortisol in our bodies just as a, as a, as a safety. People don't understand yeah, that cortisol yeah, yeah. is a hormone that a stress hormone that keeps us basically from dying of stress. Yeah. Um, and so the higher the cortisol levels, uh, the better for you in terms of stress. However, it's counterproductive in the body in itself. Yeah. It creates more inflammation. It's definitely not an environment to grow a healthy baby. And so when 
the average African-American woman is living in a state of chronic stress. It's not acute and chronic stress just from the social determinants that keep her in a day-to-day existence. Mm -hmm. Couple that with pregnancy. We're not even speaking to preconception health. How healthy was she before she got pregnant? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what are the, what are the life circumstances during this pregnancy? What are the microaggressions she's experiencing while she's pregnant? Yeah. What type of prenatal care is being implemented to make her feel included in the experience? Yeah. And then her birth experience in itself to go into an environment where fear and, and scare taxes are propagated from one system to the next, from the yeah. media to the yeah. hospital to, to family to culture. It is there. It is ingrained and yeah. then you birth in that environment and then you go home to a situation where the support isn't taught because if if nothing else, 90 percent of African-American households are run by single females. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not even going to go into the the racial implications as to why African-American males are mass incarcerated, which takes them out of the family household, which leaves us in a situation to where we're, are, are, you know, it affects us. Uh, again, these racial implications affect us across so many barriers that when it boils down to the birth experience, you can't take race out of it. You can't. So much of what you we're can't. talking about is um, pervasive throughout prenatal care, maternal health care around the globe. And we're talking about issues of power, control, yes. money, and disempowerment versus empowerment. So because this is, it comes down to an industry and this industry is about Mm -hmm. money and this industry is about um, dominance and Mm -hmm. telling women what they can and can't do with their bodies. But that's everywhere. That's the whole thing everywhere. And it becomes, and it comes from a patriarchal system. So let's include that along with the list of things that you've added, put that on top of it coming from a patriarchal system. Yes. But then there's more. And this is the intergenerational hundred year stress that is passed down Mm -hmm. from woman Mm -hmm. to woman throughout your life, especially if you're an African-American woman or a woman of color, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, Mm -hmm a lot of things that we don't have any tools to discuss. We don't know how to do it. So we bumble around and we make huge mistakes and we make a mess of it. You know, I'm certain that any conversation that I, as a white American woman who's worked in the birth industry, I'm going to bumble it. I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to try. I I wonder, is that what we should do? Yeah, well, that's part of it. Part of it is unpacking your privilege. Yeah. You know, so looking at, you know, how does, how does my privilege play a role in what I've created? So that's part of it for one is, Mm -hmm. is unpacking your privilege Mm -hmm. and knowing that you have a certain level of privilege that everybody else, especially women of color don't get to have. Yep. So that is, that's, that's major. We got to shine a light on this. And, and I, I, I feel like, there is a lot of fear in our culture to talk about racism because we're afraid to get it wrong. And because we live in a time where you make a mistake, you can get seriously penalized for it. And, and I, I think that that fear is pervasive across the birth industry in so many ways, you know, doctors are afraid of making a mistake because then they're going to get a lawsuit and they're going to, you know, be out you know, respect and professional privilege and, you know, all of that and money and nurses are afraid to make a mistake because they're going to get penalized for their job. Well, here's the thing when it comes to doctors, because again, by giving women choices and giving women options to be a voice in their birth experience, doesn't, doesn't cost them as much as they think it does. Right. So when, when it boils down to it, by educating a woman about what her options are, especially if her goal is to have a natural childbirth, it's not a matter of controlling that situation. Because again, let's talk about the patriarchal system. The majority of our obstetrics industry is still, uh, you know, male dominated. And, really? and those ideals are what, yes, it is very yeah. much so, very, very much so. To me, uh, in, it is in Portland, it's women. By women. Yeah. That's a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with the birth movement starting, you know, in that in that region of the other yeah. country. Um, so that that helps. 
But here in the South, it's still very male dominated. Yeah. Um, as in most most systems in our in our southern sector. But looking at it from the perspective of a, a woman's choice in how she delivers her baby and how she births her child, uh, if her choice is to have an unmedicated natural childbirth and that OBGYN is not uh, uh, familiar with that process or akin to that concept, they will not get sued if they perform a cesarean section right. because they're surgeons. And that's right. what they're designed to do is to look at the medical model of care and ensure on the side of the safety of the mother and the baby. And a cesarean is the safest, easiest way for them to get this baby into the world. Right. Because their mind is, I've done all I can do. This was our best resort to, to have a safe delivery was to just do major abdominal surgery on this woman, mm-hmm. remove this bo- this baby from the body instead of allowing her body to do what it was designed to do. Right. And if it doesn't happen in this time frame, then we're putting the risk, we're, we're, you know, we're increasing the risks. We're increasing the situation. Yeah. We're, we're, we're putting more intervention and in, in necessary. And so you look at it from that perspective. If I, as a, as a doctor, do the C-section, you can't sue me because even if the baby dies, I did everything I needed to do. Right. The doctors will Whereas tell you, it, you don't get sued for the C-section you do and didn't need to do. You get sued for the C-section you didn't do or did too late. And that's how they go into exactly. it. Exactly. And our, our maternity and, and that's the units, mindset. Yeah. Our maternity yeah. units are set up like intensive care units, including having two, maybe three of their very own designated operating rooms. So if you've got mm-hmm. all the toys and tools, your hospital you is go. going to be set up to use them. You know? There you go. Yeah. They employ and, 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 and it's and it scares it scares me as a birth worker. It scares me as an advocate in, in, in my community because when you have such a large population of women who just don't know the ignorance yeah. of their options. Yeah. is so pervasive and that's across the lines of just womanhood that has right. nothing that in itself has nothing to do with color I you know, know. And because I because I serve all women yeah and because I see when I when I have these conversations with women it it baffles me women who have had four five six pregnancies yeah they have no clue you know and again that's that's it just being never, a woman because it never even occurs to them yeah. that they could have these options Mm-mm. it never occurs no to them. no yeah. And then you, you couple that on top of having, you know, marginalized situations. You couple that on top of, you know, having aggression put up on you because yeah. of the color of your skin. Yeah. That creates even much more of a disconnect, even mm-hmm. much more of a wider gap. Yeah. Um, in the in the education. And it makes it and then on, on top of the the propagating of media that, you know, your doctors all seeing, all knowing, the hospitals have everything that's necessary for you to have the safest delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that, you know, media propagated the vilifying of midwifery mm-hmm. from the grand midwives and the granny midwives of the South mm-hmm. and all of the women who were born by the hands of, you know, granny midwives yeah. from the eighteen hundreds up until modern midwifery and in the anime Gaskin era of what they deemed her um, society has deemed her, you know, you look at all of those opportunities to give women a choice and an option and they were snatched away. And then again, you have a system, the media that says, Oh no, you you don't want that. That's a dirty way to have your baby. You want this clean, pristine environment where you can be beautiful and you can be pampered and you can be taken care of. And no one has selfie ready. (laughs) Yes. No one has to see you outside yourself. You could be 100% yourself in this environment and we're just going to stamp a nice little price tag to it. Yeah. And no matter what, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that, your baby is alive. Yeah. Not that your experience is valued, right. not that you're empowered by it, but that our goal is that you leave here with a live birth. Right. And because that everybody is the saddest part. Yeah, because you know, everyone in this experience agrees that we want a healthy baby out of this experience. But we have gotten into the habit of dismissing mom and saying you know, it's okay for us to do all of these things that are probably unnecessary because we're in a hurry or because you're doing something out of the ordinary because we mm-hmm. want a healthy baby. Wait a minute. Mom's here too. Mom was here yes. first. 
Mom is here now. And she needs a healthy experience yes. so she becomes a healthy mom and a healthy yes. parent. Yes. And then she goes into her next experience with a healthy mindset. Right. All of that plays a part. She doesn't experience a disconnect between her and her baby because her birth experience was so traumatizing and you know and there's so many incidences of uh what the the, the, the because we have such a rape culture yeah. the concept of birth rape birth is becoming trauma and birth so rape. Much, yeah yes that is becoming an issue that is being addressed even more as women are becoming more vocal about their birth experiences yeah. and what they didn't know they had the option to to do or say but, you know, um, in, in, else, that, in that process, Nikia, as women are becoming more, you know, it is starting to occur to them and they are recognizing that birth trauma is not the normal. I mean, a lot of women, they come through these really horrendous birth experiences where they've been mm-hmm. bullied and penalized. And, it, you know, they then they have an enlightenment moment where they say, damn, it didn't have to be that way. But, right. And so they share that experience and other women then become in, you know, enlightened to this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Respect is the baseline and we deserve even more than that. But then women are coming into their birth experiences in the hospital expecting to be, um, they're coming in on guard. Their cortisol level, their stress level is even higher. And it's because we have, yes. we have created an environment for them that is like that. And, you know, you and I have so much that we should be talking about here. And I'm mindful that we are at like the 45 minute point on our podcast. Oh my gosh. I know already? it. And you and I have only oh, started. Wow. So what I would like to do, Nakia, is this, because seriously, we have so much to talk about is mm-hmm. I would like to, this has to be at least a two part conversation. Love it. And I wonder, do you have more time right now that we can keep talking? I do. Okay. I do. Okay. So what I want to do then for my listeners is I'm going to ask you guys to listen to the rest of this conversation in part two. And Nakia and I are going to just keep talking. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was Nakia Lawson. And you can find out more about her and the work she does over on Facebook. Just go search for Birth Blessings Professional Birth and Doula Services. You'll find her. You can learn more about me at my newly designed website, Jean Faulkner. Um, I'm going to spell it, guys. Somebody told me you have a hard name. J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. Email me, Jean at Jean Faulkner. Leave me a rating over on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, if you will. Subscribe, share, 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 and please send me your questions. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks for being here with me, and let's talk again next week. Bye-bye. Someone will look at